In every day and generation, there is always a word, a fitting word from God for the people. And as I trust as we look into the Word of God this morning that we will find it so. Forgive me, I'm doing something I don't often do. I have a number of Scripture readings. I'm trying to encapsulate, really, the story of the great life of Jeremiah. So can we turn to the book of Jeremiah, and we read from chapter 1, and then we're moving over, please, to uh, the chapter number 8. And we may move into the chapter that follows. They're short readings, but um, I believe that they are significant. Jeremiah chapter 1, and we read from the verse number 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Jeremiah was ordained to the ministry before he came out of the womb. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. Over now, please, to chapter number 8. And we're moving toward the end of the chapter. Verse number 15. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and behold, trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. What was that all about? That was the fulfillment of prophecy. That was the judgment of God that God had spoken to Jeremiah about and told him to warn the people. That was judgment coming, the snorting, the prancing of the horses from Babylon. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will be, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. When I would comfort myself 
against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger and their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. What's the message of that great text? Too late. Too late to change. Too late to pray. Too late to repent. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Missed opportunity is written all over that very solemn scripture. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. That is, I'm dressed in the robes of sackcloth and my head and face and body is covered with ashes. I am black. I'm in mourning. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men. What was that? He's talking about a hotel in some quiet resort where he could escape to. The work was so much. He was pressed out of measure. He's tired and somewhat discouraged. He feels like giving up, but he knows he can't. I wish there was a lodge. I wish there was a hotel somewhere in a quiet place where I, where I could go and pillow my head and, 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 and lie down and rest and not be burdened with the weight of the ministry. I want you to know, dear people, today that there is no weight like the weight of the responsibility of the evangelical ministry, the faithful, true servant of God upon whom rests the call of God. There are many preachers and many ministers, no disrespect, no offense intended, who are actually having a holiday in their work. I have found some repairing uh, vintage motor cars and spending days, many hours every week at the job. And there's many doors unknocked. And there's many sheep in their pasture that are unvisited and uncared for. And there's little time spent on their face in prayer or preparing the message of God for the people the following Sunday. I am saying the ministry can be cozy if the call of God is not upon you in a serious manner. And there are very few faithful men of God who did not feel like quitting 
Many times I felt like that. Many times. And the only thing that kept me on and kept me going was that I knew that the call of God was on my life. And if I quit, I would be denying God. I would be failing God. And the devil would be clapping his hands and his demons demons would be celebrating. Jeremiah was there. And that hotel, that wayfaring lodging place, he never found. He kept going until martyrdom. This prophet, according to many, died a martyr's death, probably in Egypt. Oh, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For, for they proceed from evil to evil. And they know not me, saith the Lord. And uh, another short reading, uh, please, from chapter 33. And I think that chapter will resonate with some of you who love the promises of God. And um, the verse that we're about to read here, and uh, we'll read uh, two verses from the previous uh, chapter 32 first. They're very powerful. Remember these verses, if you would, please. These three verses, particularly. Uh, chapter 32, 17 and 27. 17, O Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. There is nothing too hard for our God. Not beautiful? You're allowed to say hallelujah. I promise not to put you out. And then 27. Then, 26, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Anything too hard for me? And we know the answer to that, absolutely not. Amazing that two such wonderful and powerful statements we find in the same chapter. And then chapter 33, please. Moreover, the word of the Lord. And this is a recurring phrase. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord. The Lord, thus saith the Lord. And there's a stamp of authority upon all those statements. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison. Remember, he's in jail at this time. He's in jail in the court of the prison. If it were Jonathan's house, it wasn't a nice place. I tell you, there was a pit in it, a well, and uh, I don't know how deep it was. It may have been from uh, ceiling to floor uh, in depth, and uh, there was mire and muck and water in that well, and when you were put down in there, the, 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 the soft clay and the water came up to your armpits. He could breathe hardly and nothing more. He couldn't lie down. He couldn't turn. He couldn't do anything. He was there. And uh, it was very, very fearful and fearsome to the servant of God. But look at what he said, even though in prison. Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call unto me, 
and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's a high note, isn't it? Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. Interestingly, this promise was for the afterward of the Babylonian captivity. It was the afterward. It was when they came home, when they came back, and when they had many challenges to rebuild the broken down city, the broken down walls with the burnt gates and doors, and of course that beautiful temple of the Lord. And it was very, very fitting indeed for all of that. Just a short prayer. Gracious Father, I surrender my mind to you just now. I surrender my spirit to you just now. If my spirit is not in this message, it is no good, it is empty and without life. I surrender my body to thee, my mouth, Lord. Take possession of your servant today. Feeble though I might be as I stand here, quicken me by the power of the Holy Ghost to speak the word with simplicity, with clarity, and with divine unction. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning about the weeping intercessor or the ministry of a broken heart. In a way, it's a call to intercession. And it's a call to intercession of a special kind. A special kind. In fact, intercession, the very meaning and the very, um, the very uh, impact of that language has everything to do with a broken heart, a pleading on the behalf of others. I want to talk about Jeremiah for a while, about his background, about the kind of man that he was, and uh, indeed what he was doing in the ministry. There are six men with that name, Jeremiah, in Scripture, but by far the most celebrated, by far the most well-known, and indeed highly respected prophet of Jehovah is the man who was the author of this book and the book, the shorter book that follows that um, my brother Stephen quoted from in his opening prayer, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. It is said that outside the Herod Gate in Jerusalem, there's a cave there. I've seen it many times. And they say that at this time, Jeremiah... He resided in that cave, and he stood at that highway uh, to Damascus, and the roads traveling north, and he pleaded, and he preached to the people, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by, that this amazing, celebrated city, from time immemorial, is now lying in ruins, and there's silence everywhere, because there's no people there's nobody alive. They've all been either murdered, killed by the Babylonian army, or they've been 
taken away as captives to Babylon. Is it nothing to you? And the tears were streaming down his face. Do you not tremble when you see it? Does your heart not miss a beat? Do you not feel burdened and ashamed and troubled? Is it nothing to you? That's the kind of man he was, and that is what he was writing about, really, in those lamentations. That, indeed, what is behind the lament? He was lamenting that his people were gone, that the city was no more, that the people were either in their graves or either in captivity, like the king who had been blinded first and then incarcerated in prison in Babylon for breaking his treaty uh, to, to be in subjection to the Babylonian uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The name Jeremiah means Jehovah is exalted. Jehovah is praised. And in Jeremiah's life and ministry, that was his great objective to live in a very strict obedience to God, to be faithful and to speak the word of God and to indeed uh, minister in a very direct way to the people and to their needs. And I want to say to you, dear people, today you may not have a name with that meaning behind it, and maybe there's someone in the meeting that has, but I want you to know that the great aim and object of your life as a born-again Christian should be to lift Jesus up. In your words, in your work, in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your commitment to this church, in the singing of the hymns and in worshiping God and in supporting all the ministries that relate to this church. Lifting Jesus up, Jehovah is exalted. Let's exalt his name. I spend time every morning worshiping God. And I denounce in the presence of God all other gods as demons and as idols and from beneath. And I celebrate the greatness of Jehovah, His almightiness and His power and His glory and His victory. It isn't a matter of Jesus going to win or our glorious Jehovah going to succeed in all His objectives at the end. He already has. (laughs) He already has. We have got the advantage. And here is dear Jeremiah with a name like that. This book is a marvelous book. It's one of the longest in the entire Bible. It has got 52 chapters. Uh, An amazing book. I've just read through it recently. I've read through it uh, at least 40 times and more, uh, uh, really, over the years. Um, And it, it, it is very deeply challenging and stirring. The major theme in this book is about backsliding. Thirteen times that word is mentioned. And there are very, very, very few others that use that word, with the exception of Hosea. Hosea, his book, is a much shorter book with 14 chapters, and he uses that term three times. That was the prophet whose wife, Gomer, was taken from amongst prostitutes. And after living with him for a number of years, she went back to that life. And uh, Hosea went to fetch her back from uh, her house of shame, illustrating that God would take Israel back. God would take Judah back if she would repent. 
and if she would see sense and if she would make amends. But I am saying that word is very, very fitting for the period, the season through which Jeremiah lived. A period that encompassed the reign of five kings, granted only two of them, reigned for a short time, like three months. One reigned for 21 years and another 10 years. And then the great Josiah, he had reigned for a much longer period, something like 30 or 31 years. But I'm saying that for a period, um, for the reign of many of those kings, Jeremiah was in office. He was serving God for a long time. He had a long ministry. But I'm saying this word backsliding, backsliding. When you're backsliding, you're not going forward. I uh, picked up on what my brother Stephen uh, mentioned about the ministry last Sunday, about going forward. When you're going forward, you're not backsliding. Backsliding means you're losing ground. You're going back. You're going back, and I want you to know, in case you don't understand, when you, when you stop going to the prayer meeting, you're backsliding. If not already backslidden, past tense. When you deliberately rule out coming to the Lord's table, it could be that you are backsliding, backsliding. When you are stopping coming with your family uh, to the evening church meeting, that could be a sign of backsliding. When you stop having your quiet time, Stop reading the Word of God, and perhaps you could be reading the Word of God and praying, but it's just a matter of form. It's just perfunctory. You're doing it out of a sense of habit. You could be backslidden in heart, and nobody knows about it. When you don't love Jesus as much as you used to, you're backslidden. I have somewhat against you, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Thou hast left thy first love. And that was spoken about a church that was born in revival and had Paul as its pastor and to whom a great and wonderful book had been written bearing the name, the book or the epistle to the Ephesians. A people who were blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. That was an opening remark. Backslidden. But here, the backsliding in this Old Testament period, clearly, um, about 2,650 years ago, the people of God, they had neglected the temple and the worship of God. They started worshiping idols. They had idols in their backyards. They worshiped the queen of heaven. They worshiped Thomas, the demonic deity. They worshipped, it was a bit like Mary Oratory, Mary Oratory, whichever way you want to pronounce it, and they, they, they caked, they, they, they baked cakes, and they offered them, offered them to demons, really. When you are worshipping idols, when you're worshipping anything other than God, you're worshipping idols. And that's very vexatious, and it's very, very uh, heart-rending. Uh, to our Lord Jesus. 
very, very, very much. So they were worshipping idols. They were committing fornication. Actually, in their worship, the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth actually required uh, prostitution. They had temple. They had temple uh, um, ladies there, beautiful women that uh, enticed and attracted young men to commit sexual sin in order, in order uh, to, to attract them to become devotees to Baal and to Ashtaroth and to many other wicked and demonic deities. And there was also a lot of uh, sexual immorality within families, within marriages. And the lament about all of this was this. It wasn't a case of people coming to pay or to bring a gift to the ladies that they wanted to fornicate or to commit adultery with. It was actually the ladies were giving gifts to those who came. And I want you to know that today our society, by and large, is rotting with adultery. Rotting. Rotting, I'm saying, with all manner of sexual sin, fornication, and idolatry. We are not on a collision course with God. We have already collided. We have collided with God and with his word. And that is a very, very serious manner, a matter. Backsliding. To be very frank and honest and straightforward with you, clearly, um, the church of Jesus Christ in the West, I'm talking about Great Britain and America, and the church in the Irish Republic, by and large, the church is in a backslidden state. By and large. We thank God for many, many godly ministers who are preaching faithfully. We thank God for, indeed, many, many intercessors, many who pray. But I'm saying, by and large, there are churches that are just existing in name. There are men preaching, and they're preaching right things, but they, they don't believe them. They don't believe them. They're out of touch with God. They're just preaching for bread. It's their job. There's a lot of men in the ministry, and they're in the ministry because they're no good at anything else, and they're not any good at that either. That may sound very mean and uh, very, um, very, uh, what should I say, offensive, but in a lot of cases, that is how it is. Professional religion is not acceptable or pleasing to God. I repeat, we have collided with the Almighty. And the, the snorting of the horses can be heard from Dan. That was many miles away from Jerusalem. They could hear the prancing of the war party, the armies of the Babylonians coming. And judgment is coming. Jud judgment is coming. The people did not like Jeremiah. They regarded him as a menace, a disturber of the peace. They regarded him as being very negative, nothing good to say. His message was one of condemnation, one of great negativity. 
And you know, there's many faithful servants of God, and that is how they are branded. The men that occupy this pulpit, uh, Pastor Bertie, and my brother Stephen, and many others who preach from this pulpit, and many others in churches like this with an ethos and with the burden of the Lord, like this church has, they are viewed as being very negative, very negative. Nothing comforting or good. Don't often speak about the love of God. But I say when the prancing of the horses and the snorting of uh, the uh, enemy's war machine can be heard from a great distance, we know, we know that the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we're not saved. Judgment is at the door, and it's all but too late to repent in our country. Oh, you say, what a mouthful. You sound a bit like Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah then I will be. Remember, Jeremiah was given a message, and uh, he was told to speak it. It wasn't his. I've been given a message, and I too must speak it. It's not mine. As I said on an earlier time from this pulpit, I'm just the, the postman. I'm just delivering God's Word to the people of God, if they will receive it. His messages um, were given during a period of a great apostasy. I am saying a time that was marked and shot through with backsliding. God have mercy on us in our backslidden state. I remember seeing a church up in um, Donegadee region, and I never saw so many things on the uh, notice board outside. They almost needed a second uh, notice board to accommodate all the... Um, all the activities of the church for children, youth, ladies, men, everything. But in that entire list, I went through it carefully, not one prayer meeting. A church that doesn't have a prayer meeting is backslidden. Dare I say it, a home that does not have a family altar is backslidden. A home where the parents say, children, now it's Bible time. Come, drop whatever you're doing, be that homework or be that some other pleasure. It's Bible time. Let's, let's gather for 10 minutes. We're going to read the Bible together, and I'm going to pray because it's getting near bedtime. And in the morning, busy as every home is that has children that go to school, not at the moment because holidays have come, but when it's uh, school time, and there's always a rush and a push. There should always be time left, even five minutes, to read a short devotional and to pray for God's protection on your children. Your children need it. Your children need it. I want you to know that they're facing something that we never faced in our day, or the generation indeed uh, 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 long ago, but the generation of today, our children, our grandchildren, I tell you, it's very, very, very challenging. I was reading in the newspaper, in fact, it was probably an unconverted lady wrote in the Daily Mail last week, but how concerned, how concerned she was about the school in England that her children were attending. And she mentioned a whole lot of things that were not good, that she did not approve of for her children. She was not a Christian, insofar as I know. And she said that sex education being taught in the school 
was indoctrinating the children about um, uh, sexual orientation. And she said a lot of the children, over 50% of the children uh, in uh, that school were feeling that they were neither a boy nor a girl. And a lot of the reading books in schools, and many parents don't even know it, it's about uh, families with two mums, two dads, and about homosexual relationships and how wholesome and how, how uh, um, okay it is these days. I'm saying there's a whole new book. There's a whole new uh, uh, future in a way. But God is missing. God is missing. Long gone are the days when assemblies were held in schools and when the Bible was read in a hymn sung. And somebody, not even converted perhaps, but led the children in a prayer, a short prayer. Gone are those days in England. And in America, I think it's still the case. You will be arrested. The police will be called if you're found with a Bible in your satchel. That is in state schools. Gone is the day. A young man who had come from Russia was... He brought his Bible with him. He was a Christian way back when the Soviet Union was what we knew it to be. And at break time, he took out his Bible to read it. They called the police. And he was arrested. Oh, he said, I, I've just come from the Soviet Union. And he said, it's, it's illegal to have a Bible there. He said, am I still in the Soviet Union? Is this, is this land a communist country too? We are living, I am saying, in a very secular age where there is no room for God or the Son of God. There's no room for evangelical Protestantism. No room for the gospel. That beautiful word that simply means good news. Encompassing the love of God and forgiveness and heaven and salvation and a lifelong, indeed an eternity long relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in unprecedented times. I tell you, there's a spiritual COVID in the church. A spiritual COVID in the church. There's a pandemic a, pandem a pandemic of atheism, a pandem pandemic of Sodom and Gomorrah lifestyles. I say the whole of the United Kingdom and the, the, the uh, uh, United States is an extended Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we have went way, way, way beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. Way beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. We are a hundred times, if not ten thousand times worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And I say, I hear the snorting of the horses coming from Babylon. I hear, I hear the, the, the motion, the movement, the mobilization of the, the armies of judgment coming. And come they will, come they will. Come they will. But before that judgment comes, I, I don't intend to be around. And I'm hoping that you'll come on the same journey with me to meet my Lord in the air. Hallelujah. What a moment that will be. So this man, Jeremiah, he talked about the immediacy of the Babylonian captivity. He talked about the uh, total destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction also of the beautiful temple that Solomon had built. And the people said, excuse me, you're an absolute lunatic. 
Jeremiah. You think God, you think Jehovah is going to allow this city that he chose and made David king of and and Solomon his son afterward and the temple that Solomon built, you think God's going to allow this place to go up and smoke? He said, absolutely. Absolutely, it's going to happen. They said, you're a madman. You're dangerous. You should be locked up and the key thrown away. And they they tried to kill him, not once or twice, many, many times. And they didn't expect ever to see him come out of that, uh, that hole uh, or well in the house of Jonathan, the, the dungeon. They didn't expect to see him alive again, but God preserved him. God looks after his own. God preserves his servants through thick and thin and all manner of trials. He was faithful. Judgment is coming. And you brothers and sisters not saved, what are you doing about to get them in? Your friends and neighbors, I pray constantly for our neighbors and friends. And my wife is forever distributing literature amongst them. You need to get your family in. You need to get your neighbors in. Heard about a workman who worked in a place for over 40 years. It came time for him to retire. And uh, at his retirement, he mentioned something or it came out that he was a Christian. And the man who worked beside him for nearly that length of time, he said, I never knew you were a Christian. And he'd been there for 40 years. Do the people in your office, factory, shop, or wherever you happen to be, do they know that you're a born-again, strong, praying Christian? Have you tried to win them? Have you tried to make an impression on them for God? That should be the first thing. It's always easier when you do it at the beginning. Judgment is coming. Harvest is past. Summer has ended. And there's a point where it's too late to repent, I repeat again. Too late to get saved. You pass the hope, the post of hope and forgiveness. Yes, the Babylonian captivity would last for 70 years. See how precise the prophecy was. 70 years. It wasn't 69 and a half. It wasn't 72. 70 years. And so it was the people were taken away. According to the word of Jeremiah, there were other prophets and preachers there, and they said, oh, that's not going to happen. Then they said, it's going to happen, all right, but it'll happen for two years. Two years, and then they'll come back. My word, they were totally, totally off the Richter scale of accuracy. Seventy years. And Jeremiah could say that come seventy years, the Lord's going to be merciful, and he'll raise up uh, another king, another uh, empire that will release the people to come home. And then there'll be a regathering, a homecoming. And he went on to speak about what would happen in the millennium. This was a faithful man, I say, a faithful man of God. And what a difficult, difficult time he had, really. He was very courageous. He was um, very straight in his ministry and uh, his presentation of the Word of God, and he was a man who prayed a lot. And that's what I want to uh, finish by emphasizing. 
We talked about the weeping intercessor. My dear friends, have you ever shed a tear for a lost soul? Have you ever shed a tear for your lost loved ones? Have you ever wept over your own sins? Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He was praying day and night, day and night. And he was weeping. At the same time, I read recently about a godly minister called uh, the Reverend, um, what's this his name was? I wrote it down. Yes, the Reverend Abel Cleary. I'd not heard of him before. He was an associate of that great revivalist preacher, Charles Grandison Finning. And uh, he lived and worked in the regions of uh, New Boston, or New England, Boston region. And this minister, he had such a burden, such a burden for souls. He was asked to say grace at the table one day in somebody's home where Finney was present. And after he got a couple of sentences out, he burst into tears. And he had to excuse himself. This man, he couldn't preach because of weeping. He couldn't stand up, actually. He couldn't even stand up on his knees when praying for weeping. He would lie prostrate on the floor. And for hours he would weep and weep and weep and pray. And when he prayed, things happened. Abel Cleary. You can check that gentleman up on the, on, 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 uh, the internet and see what you find out about him. Mighty man of God. But he was an intercessor. And at that time, there was another great prayer warrior known as Father Nash. He wasn't a, an unmarried father. He was a minister of the gospel and a very strong one, an evangelist. And he would go ahead of Charles Grandison Finney. Uh, when Finney would be conducting campaigns, he'd go maybe uh, three weeks uh, before the meetings were due to start. And this man would pray day and night. And Cleary would pray day and night. They'd pray and pray. And whenever Finney came, the whole ground was broken up and people were already ready gathering for the meetings. And, and hundreds and thousands got saved. Men and women, I want you to know that there's power in intercession. Amen. There is power in godly tears. There's power behind a broken heart. There is an untouched, an unexplored power yet in prayer that the church has yet to discover. Do you know there's such a verse in the Bible? In Isaiah 
64, that remarkable prayer of Isaiah where it says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of men. The things that God has prepared for those who pray. Now that's, that's the essence of the verse. God works for those who wait for him. And the devil has cheated us out of so much, out of so much. I believe men and women and young people, no soul is ever lost that is prayed for through many, many tears, unless in rare exceptions. If you're praying and weeping for somebody and you've been doing so for years, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. There will be, there will be victory. There will be deliverance. Something is going to ha- something's even happening now. Keep going. God is looking for intercessors. And I want to tell you that when we get home to heaven, the great preachers that you've heard about and maybe heard in, in, in real life, they're not going to be at the front line when the accolades and when the rewards are being given out. Let me tell you who will be at the front line, who will be at the front of that great uh, and vast congregation. I tell you, it will be the intercessor. It'll be the intercessor. It'll be the weeping, praying men and women. And there'll be some little old ladies. Well, they'll be neither little nor old there. But when they were on earth, that's how how they looked. You would have thought a, a, a whiff of wind would have blown them down. But I tell you, they'll be at the front line. It'll be the intercessor, I say. The praying men and women. The greatest gift, I say. The greatest ministry on earth is the ministry of prayer. And I challenge you to enter into it. And with that, I leave you with the verses I ended my readings with. Jeremiah 33 and 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not of. Call unto me. That speaks of responsibility. We're not given an option. Not call on me if you please. It's a command. Call! Call! And I challenge the church today. Get up and be counted in the prayer meeting. Get up, I say, and register your name, register your life and your commitment to prayer. Don't be reading books only about prayer. Don't be talking and preaching sermons only about prayer. I say pray. The best way to learn how to pray is to pray. The disciples didn't say, Lord, teach us how to pray. They said, teach us to pray. And that's the greatest lesson and the greatest school we could ever attend. I think it was Andrew Murray who wrote a book about the school of intercession. The school of intercession. Call on to me. God is calling people today to pray. Calling, calling. And please, when you answer that call, it's not for four days. It's not for a week. It's not for a month. It's for a lifetime. A lifetime. Call unto me, and I will show thee. I will show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not of.
That's a promise, a responsibility followed by a promise. God will show you His power. He will show you His power. And the latter part of that great text, it suggests limitlessness, great and mighty things that you know not of. I say this world has yet to see what God can do through those who take the matter of prayer seriously. And look at what we read and came across in that beautiful um, chapter 32 um, in Jeremiah. Uh, We read there those powerful verses, is there anything too hard for me? The Lord is uh, making that statement, is anything too hard for me? And then the statement is given, there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing. Nothing. There are situations that we are facing in this country at the moment that are too hard for our politicians. Our politicians sometimes make a mess, no harm to them. Make a mess. The politicians are not the answer, but the throne of grace and the power of God and the man and the woman who prays, the weeping intercessor. That's where the power, the real power, lies. I am saying. There are situations that will not be changed. You know, in America, there's been a strong battery of prayer for years, for 50 years, to defeat and to bring an end to abortion there. Who ever would have expected that to happen? Well, everybody who prayed should have been expecting it to happen. And the world is is actually stunned, stunned and raging. They're, 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 They're too... Uh, uh, frightened and shocked even to get the words out. They never thought that would happen. And there's other things, other things in our country, other things in our country, uh, uh, including abortion and sexual orientation. God can step in. God can change the status quo. God can deal with the negative and the ungodly legislation. Yes, he can. (laughs) Yes, he can. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I say he can do anything but fail. Call unto me, and I will answer it. That's your responsibility. Go home and get to work. Do your business, and you will not regret it.